I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. To abstain from politics is in itself a political attitude. These words were written by Simone de Beauvoir. She recognized that in times like our own, very difficult and uncertain times, no one should be on the sidelines. And like so many writers before them, my guests on today's edition of The Literary Life choose not to be silent. They and scores of other writers have recently come together to form Writers Against Trump. Poet, activist, and essayist Carolyn Forche sociologist, novelist, and poet Todd Gitlin, and author, columnist, and essayist Diane Roberts, join me to discuss how Writers Against Trump came to be, its mission, and how it might act as a catalyst far beyond the date of this upcoming election. As Siri Husfed, a writer and co-founder of the group, says, as writers, we know words matter. Nothing proves this more than what you're about to hear. Welcome, Diane, Todd, and Carolyn to The Literary Life. It's great to have you all here. And for those people in the audience, you know, I'm able to see them on Zoom, even though this is audio. So it's just been really wonderful to be able to see their faces after not seeing them for so long. Um, and I'm just curious, how are you all doing? Uh, Todd, where are you now? I mean, upstate New York, uh, a couple of miles from the Massachusetts border, in a, in a state of uh, privileged isolation and uh, more or less contained, often contained delirium. In uh, <laughs> my my territorial whereabouts are are a good vantage from which to, as a friend of mine says, to mix the metaphor, dog paddle through the miasma. That's great. Now, did, did you leave New York to go there? Were you living in the city before this? Yes, we left here on March 18th and haven't been back. It's now into the seventh month. I'm teaching by Zoom. You're teaching, you're teaching at NYU, right? Is no, that Columbia. At Columbia, that's right, at Columbia. And, and Carolyn, how about you? Where are you now? I'm in a house on the Potomac River, seven miles as the crow flies from the White House. And I've been here for the past uh, seven months, teaching by Zoom to, at Georgetown University. That's wonderful. And, and also, you have a new book, right, that's either out or about to come out, a new book of poetry? The poetry book came out on March the 10th. I did a launch for the book on March the 11th, and that was the end of it. <laughs> After that right. was my last plane flight on March the 11th. It's in the lateness of the world, a new book of poems. And how the does it feel? Wonderful. No, I know. How does it feel to be 
bringing that out now? Uh, is do you feel like it's you're able to find? I think you've been able to find your readership, but yes, I've had many zooms with wonderful book clubs, and I've visited classes all over the country um, on Zoom and read from the book and had conversations. So it's been fine. In fact, uh, in some ways, I've been able to uh, present the work to people in all over the world <laughs> because we don't we don't go anywhere <laughs> there are no borders on zoom right and you know what's really true is in march before all this happened i never knew what zoom was to be honest it's pretty pretty amazing how adaptable and resilient we can be at times but uh and diane you're in florida right i am in the capital of florida in tallahassee um, distressingly close to our mini Trump governor who has just announced that he thinks we should fill the college football stadiums with people for college football games and I my last book was about the culture of college football so while I love the game sort of I think this is a scary 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 thing but I'm with y'all on the Zoom. Um, even though my last book was four years ago, I've been doing a lot of Zooming with, um, I'm here to lower the tone, with ESPN, and, <laughs> you know, less highfalutin literary types. But, uh, you know, Tallahassee is a big football town, and we just, we're also a big COVID town. And so I sit near what I think of as, as the heart of Florida darkness, but it's my town, not Ron DeSantis's. So eventually he'll leave. I was born here. Well, you're like eighth generation Floridian, right? Yeah, I'm like related to the mastodons they dragged out of the springs. <laughs> you know, my family never had sense enough to go anywhere else. They're like, this is a nice swamp. We'll stay here. <laughs> Well, you know, that the thing that the governor did, and as, as most people know, I'm in Miami, and um, <laughs> he told the Miami Dolphins that they should open their stadium up to 65,000 people for their next game. And fortunately, fortunately, they've declined to do that. So they're going to continue, whether they can play or not. There's been COVID showing up in football teams now as well. But, and uh, coaches. Yes. You got coaches with COVID, you got players with COVID, and you got liability issues. And it scares me that I may be a better lawyer than the governor, right. you know, who went to Harvard Law School. So I'm just like, yeah, he's, I think, yeah. he's trying to make a Trumpian point more than anything. Yes. So let me ask you I, I actually, actually saw a tweet by somebody, and it really resonated with me. Um, the tweet was, I want to wake up one morning and not have Trump flood my waking world too, which, which is, which, which is, you know, very profound. I mean, all of us, I mean, all of us have been um, rightfully, um, you know, concerned and obsessed with what's happening in this election. And when I found out about Writers Against Trump, I was just thrilled that there was an outlet for writers and people in the literary community to um, come together and express themselves and find out what it is that we could all do to make a difference in this election. So, uh, Carolyn, maybe you can start off and then Todd and Diane can weigh in too. How, how did Writers Against Trump, what is it, first of all, and then how did it all come together? Okay. It's an emergency organization. Um, and we, we called it Writers Against Trump because we wanted it to be a very large tent with people who perhaps weren't so enthusiastic about the Democratic candidate. But so our mission was to defeat President Trump. We had our Peter Balakian gave me a call around August 1st and said, Paul Oster and Askold and Todd and a few others are talking about starting something to, to sort of encourage the literary community to channel and focus in this effort. And we had our first Zoom on August the 3rd, and there were only eight of us. And we talked about 
our, you know, what we wanted to do. And we had sort of ideas that we wanted to create an organization that where writers could weigh in and organize and influence their communities and write op-eds. We had wonderful dreams, but within a month, we had over 1,700 people signed up and we had three I would call them angels of the internet, three um, women who joined us. So we're now the gang of 11 and uh, Sophie Oster and Jules Latimer and uh, um, Suchi Saraswat. So we were lucky because they were able to build our platforms and reach out on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And pretty soon we were doing uh, Zooms every other Saturday, focusing each Saturday on a swing state. So we had, uh, the first one was North Carolina, and then I organized one on Texas. We have upcoming Zooms on Florida and uh, Pennsylvania. So we're on a roll. And Wisconsin uh, too. Pardon? Wisconsin also. Wisconsin also. And then um, we're planning on the 5th of November, and this is where the bookstores come in and where you come in, Mitch, which is so important. We thought that the aftermath of the election might be contested, might be controversial, and our idea was to have all of the writers convene somehow on the 5th with three questions. What just happened? What's happening now? And what's going to happen? What should happen going forward? Um, just in case we had to organize to protect the vote and protect the process. Um, I'm not so sure that we won't be celebrating that night now, but a knock on wood, I don't want to speak too soon. But uh, what we have in mind is to have, we invited bookstores, independent bookstores all over the country to have meetings in advance of this National Assembly meeting. And so we have- On enough, the same day, right? On, on the same, same day, prior to the meeting, then we all converge on the National Assembly. And so wonderful bookstores like Books and Books and Elliott Bay, Politics and Prose, the Harvard Bookstore, City Lights. We have many bookstores and more every day, we hope, because we think the bookstores are often, uh, in some, particularly in small towns, the place where people can gather and be in community, particularly progressives. So I think that galvanizing American writers to stand up and, and uh, speak truth to power and, um, and take the role of, of uh, take civic responsibility and galvanize their readers, it's very important. U.S. writers haven't always done that. They haven't always wanted to be public or to be perceived as political. So then we thought about the bookstores and we thought that the bookstores are our home and we need them. So then we reached out to you and we realized it was all going to be possible. And I'll let Todd take it from there. Well, I, I also just want to say that the, plen the plenary session that'll happen after the election, no matter what happens, I think it'll be really interesting, um, even with a Biden-Harris win, I think people and writers can then stay engaged to make sure that all of the issues that are so important that have revealed themselves during this whole period can then be pressed forward. So maybe the Writers Against Trump will morph into something else as a advocacy group for a lot of the issues that you know that you know that are so that are so um so prominent and important but but to speak to todd for a second so hearing carolyn and it, it raises a question and that is why todd do you think and you can broaden it as well why do you think writers you know why, why are writers so well positioned to do this and to advocate for democracy what what is it that is particularly unique to writers that who should be doing this. So that image you started with uh, is a good place to start. Uh, Trump took over our minds. Um, it's, you know, like, have you ever had the problem of getting a computer fixed and then you permit somebody in a tech office somewhere to invade your screen? Um, Trump has invaded our screen. And since we're in the thinking and word business, the production of meaning business, 
uh, it's been a usurpation. We've been colonized. So I think Writers Against Trump is one of the great outpourings of an anti-colonial movement uh, in which we insist on our prerogatives to do the sorts of things that we do, which all have to do with truth. And I know there's a whole lot about unreliable narrators and so on, but a, a lot of that is bullshit. I mean, we expect, even when we read unreliable narrators, we expect to believe in the roles that we're seeing played out from time to time. We, we're acting as if they're telling the truth. Now, I, it's not just writers who are in this position. Because anybody who's in the truth business has been pulverized by this apparatus. Doctors, scientists, uh, people who believe in the, in the legitimate powers of government, people who, uh, who are serious about anything uh, have been uh, crushed. So we fought back and we are one entity. I think it's thrilling. I mean, I must say it's been an inspiration to me in a very dark time to know that the, you know, there are significant numbers of us who not only care about the truth, but are willing to devote some time to making it realized. And um, so it's, uh, you know, I think, I, I, I like the notion that what's at stake in this election is Eros versus Thanatos. It's the life instinct versus the death instinct. And, it, and integral to the death instinct is the erasure of reality, is the erasure of even any honest attempt to find truth. I don't think, you know, we're all kind of postmodern these days and we don't really think the truth is right there on the surface to be found, but we sure aspire to it in our different ways. The sum of what we do is our aspiration. Mm. And I, it's thrilling that we're all out in the public trying to see what comes of this. And I, I just, the other thing I would add is that I'm very happy that we're going to be doing these events two, two days after what we used to call election day, um, because we're going to be, you know, we've been inducted for the duration. We, we, the world is in, uh, is in a horrible condition, uh, health, climate, race, injustice, you name it. Uh, so I see this as part of a mobilization that I don't expect to leave. I'm glad to hear that. And, and Carolyn, speak a little bit to, you know, the role of the writer in, I mean, you, you like Todd and Diane have been activists for so long, but also you've been very, um, Carolyn, very um, active in writing about things happening in Latin America. So talk about, you know, the role of the writer in other parts of the world that predates this, where the writer has been very active in the political, in the political sphere. Yes. Uh, well, I'm always, I've always been inspired and moved by poets and writers who at great peril to themselves and cost to themselves have defied uh, tyrants. And I think about uh, writers and poets willing to be imprisoned. Uh, some of them were, some of them were killed in this process, but Nazim Hikmet, who spent half his adult life in prison in Turkey, Natalia Gorbanevskaya in former Soviet Union, Miguel Hernandez in Spain, mm. Robert Desnos, the French resistance poet, Faiz Ahmad Faiz in India, Ato Rene Castillo in Guatemala. So there's many. Uh, there, I put 157 of them into an anthology uh, mm. years ago uh, because uh, I was very moved by their, by their courage, but also their sense of what the writer meant to the commons, to the people for whom they wrote. Uh, Camus said, we, we're at the service of those who suffer uh, the abuses of power. Uh, we are not in the service of power. And so I think because, well, language is fundamental to us. This is what Todd was saying, that we were so offended by how language has been destroyed, manipulated, and distorted under this regime, this administration, that, that I think that was our primary motivation in the beginning to rescue the language. And, and so that, I thought, wait a minute, it's our turn now. It's our turn now in the United States. We have to speak. 
to the party of humanity. We have to oppose this fascism. And we are still in danger of, of being defeated and having to live under a, a, an ugly authoritarian fascist regime. So we can't become complacent just because the polls are with us, just because our vice presidential candidate did so well last night. You know, these things buoy our spirits, but we have to be vigilant that this is what's important. And I think that um, I'm very proud of American writers in this moment because I think they're, they are finding within themselves the strength and the courage to, to stand publicly against this regime no matter the consequences. Well, your, your words uh, speak to me. Your, your words answer, the way you spoke and what you spoke about answered my question as to why writers are uniquely qualified to do this work. And I thank you for the message. We cannot become complacent. Diane, how did, uh, I know that you have a double whammy. You have to wake up with Trump on your mind and also Ron DeSantis on your mind. So how did you come to this and how did you get well, him? I think I came to this because Bob Shikochis uh, has a bad internet connection in New Mexico <laughs> and uh, he sicked Asgold on to me. And basically he said, Roberts has to do it. And I said, fine. Because I thought, what a wonderful thing. I've been involved a little bit with Writers Resist, which uh, became a line. And I apologize for my cat, Hugo, who um, can't stand to not be the center of attention, rather like Donald Trump, but he's much more attractive. And what he says makes And I more see sense. him, and he's not orange. He's white he's and not orange. And he makes perfect sense, Hugo does, unlike Donald Trump. But I thought, you know, writers, because everything that Todd and Carolyn said is true, we are the people who work in language. Language is our, our cudgel or our stiletto or however we want to use it. And... I have, I write nonfiction, but I also write journalism. I write columns. And um, Trump uh, took up residence in my brain um, the day after he was elected in 2016. I didn't want him in there, but he's been living in there. And it's like, it's like being possessed by, oh, some sort of tawdry spirit, if there are tawdry spirits in the spirit world, um, that just causes rage. And so I've been doing a lot of journalism because for me, that was a way to hold on to the truth and to say, I will not let this go by. I will not let, you know, this man tell me that climate change isn't real or that, uh, you know, journalists are the enemy of the people and that Stalinist phrase. Um, and I'm sure he would uh, lock us up. Um, because if you look at who he admires in the world, Donald Trump, it's um, the dictator of Turkey. It's Vladimir Putin. It's you know, the guy running Hungary, which he wants to shut down universities because universities are places of truth, like newspapers, like poetry like fiction these are all organs of the truth and trump can't tolerate the truth because it is and this is the oldest of all the cliches about him he is the emperor who has no clothes there is nothing there but bluster writers can counteract bluster with specificity intelligence humor uh, facts, God help us, uh, grace, beauty, all of these things are the enemies of Trump's project. Trump's project is to reduce this country to a white, allegedly Christian, um, backward-looking little fiefdom where all you care about is the stock market, even though most Americans don't get anything much from the stock market. None of that matters. It's a grift to him. 
culturally, though, he knows he needs he needs that ideology to get uh, certain people to vote for him. People who are terrified that we're getting browner and we're getting younger and we're getting less religious and it's a wonderful thing that we're carrying on writers against trump after the election because quite frankly we will have to i mean i actually think joe biden is a good guy but we will have to fight with him some too i look forward to fighting with a democrat it's been a while um you know we need to say no 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 that's that's not enough on climate change that's not going to do and no, no, you, you know, let's go a little further in healthcare. I mean, look at Sweden. They're not dying in poverty. They're all riding around in nice cars and drinking coffee. Um, you know, but at least we know that Biden will listen to the people whose job it is, the scientists. We know that Trump doesn't. And the fact that they pumped him so full of whatever it was that he's feeling mighty fine right now is allowing him to claim some sort of superhuman victory over uh, the coronavirus, which is like the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It's oh, very- he's cured, right? He's cured. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, Diane, I wanna pick up on one thing you said because it's been the thing that sustained me through this. You know, I'm surrounded by books. You know, I go to the bookstore and it's like, <laughs> I always feel insecure because I can never read everything I wanna read. but. But what has gotten me through this a lot is I've done more reading than I think I've done in a long, long time. And part of it is reading about human stories, reading stories, reading, reading poetry, reading stories, even reading nonfiction about people and, you know, touching with humanity. And I think that is what Trump has kind of leached out of our politics. And that is the whole idea of being humane to one another. And, and so... I think you're absolutely right. I think that is what writers do. Writers tell stories. Writers connect us to each other. Writers try to figure out what emotions are and what you know feelings are and all of that. So all of that is really, really important. But what I want to get to is we have the website. The website is writersagainsttrump.com or .org. And what I want to ask um, Todd is, what are some of the specific things? And I do know that there is no vetting process to say you're a writer and you're not a writer. There's no, you know, you don't have to vet yourself. I mean, you could be a writer and maybe be not well published or maybe even not even be published, but you consider yourself a writer and you can still sign up. Is that right, Todd? Yes. Um, those of us who were the founders uh, put up videos and texts in which we tried to explain ourselves, and we threw it open. So anybody who goes to our site uh, can do that. They can upload a video, talk about why it's important to, to defeat Trump, uh, put up a text. That's one thing we've been doing. Second thing we've been doing is maintaining a calendar of events, which include our own Zoom plenaries, with in particular focusing on particular states, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and so on. Um, another thing we've been doing is trying to be a clearinghouse for information about who's doing what. So for example, there are people organizing under the rubric of protecttheresults.com or org, I forget which, who are uh, trying to figure out how to mobilize people for potential widespread civil disobedience, if it looks as though that's needed to ward off uh, Donald Trump and his, his brain of uh, Bill Barr. Um, there's another enterprise called Count the Vote, which is an assembly, each of these is a, an assemblage of organizations that are cooperating to do training in civil disobedience and to uh, connect to others who are doing this sort of work to support uh, activity against vote, against vote suppression to support lawyers, uh, to, to get people to volunteer as poll workers, especially younger people for the obvious pandemic reason. Um, so we're trying to be a, a center, sort of vortex of energy. Well, I also know that many of the founders, including you, Todd, are, are writing essays for various 
you know, I saw one in the Atlantic. You've written a couple for USA Today, I believe, that are really, really important. So you're utilizing your skills and your connections to be able to get the word out as well. Yeah, we're writing. I mean, we're, yeah. we're, we're writing. And, uh, you know, God knows it's not always easy in this climate, but uh, it's, you know, it's, a, it's our way of breathing. I mean, Sisyphus, Sisyphus rolls the rock, we write. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and it's very rewarding, I must say. I mean, a lot of people, I think, have communicated with us that they're thrilled that we exist and they want to know how to attach themselves. And so there's a whole kind of galaxy of, of um, enterprises of which we are one and, and, and a vigorous one. Well, I know that you know we are in the middle of and this may sound propagandistic let it we are in the middle of the largest scale american social movement in history i know that sounds wacky many no, but you, more, you've many studied more, this you you've written about this you've studied yeah. it you wrote the book on occupy wall street yeah. so coming from you it's not nutty it's you know, well, there are more pe- millions of people participated in the Black Lives Matter demonstrations all over the country, big cities, small towns. I interviewed the mayor of Corbin, Kentucky, when I was writing a piece about this for the Washington Post. Corbin, Kentucky is the home of Colonel Sanders. <laughs> and in Sanders Park, underneath the statue of the colonel, uh, a rally was held quite early in the uprising at which the mayor spoke and the police chief kneeled. They had had, by the time I spoke with the mayor, three marches. And I, she was very compelling to me when I spoke to her. She said, I'm a moderate. I just know what I see. What's going on is intolerable. The treatment of black people by the police. This is, you know, this is the venture of people living in towns which were once sundown towns because black people were forbidden to be there uh, when the sun set. Uh, This is huge. And when we think about the women's marches of 2017 and subsequently, when we think about the great efflorescence of uh, activity within the primaries, the, the tremendous results of the 2018 elections, we're in the middle of a, a big, big upheaval. And uh, so we have this immediate imperative to drive these maniacs out of the, the temple. Uh, but that is only part of what we need to do. After all, if I could just add one more thing. You know, Trump didn't come from nowhere. Bullshit didn't come from nowhere. Climate denial has been a staple of the Republican Party for decades, paid for by fossil fuel company uh, obscurantists and liars. Um, the, uh, law, the Republican Party has been lying about race and racism from the time of the Southern strategy, uh, which goes back into the Nixon 70s. Um, it's a party of lies. It's a party of lies about who Americans are. It's a party of the lie that, you know, as Reagan put it, the, the most frightening words in the English language are, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. I mean, though people, that's, there is that other America. That's Trump's America. They believe that they don't need masks because they're Superman. Um, And so what we're dealing with here is something at the heart of American identity. And that's why not only does it have all these rivulets, all these tributaries coming toward us, but we're also ramified toward um, the necessary work of restoring uh, a respect for truth and decency. And we're fighting against the idea of America as a white people's country. And I think that's one of the things that writers can do is tell that truth. Uh, I just wanted to say quickly about Florida, where we've, we've had a, a long history of voter suppression. I mean, people think Florida's not a Southern state. Boy, is it ever. We may not all drink sweet tea, but we behave as a Southern state uh, in the worst senses of that expression. Uh, We suppressed the vote in 2000. Uh, We did all kinds of nefarious things in 1876. This state is going to be close and it's going to probably 
be contested. We're already in lawsuits. Um, so on the website for Writers Against Trump, people can find a thing that actually exhorts you to action, not just talking of, you know, we talk about it and we write about it, but this gets you to make a plan how you're going to vote, when you're going to vote. Are you going to vote in person early? Are you going to vote by mail? Are you going to vote on election day? And to get other people to make a plan, which sort of sounds, uh, you know, almost silly, but it, it really isn't. Um, a lot of people don't vote because they just kind of didn't vote. If you have 15 of your friends saying, listen, here's my plan, what are you going to do? And we're also asking people to tell stories about why they're going to vote. What impels you to vote? Is it just, I hate Trump and he's orange? Or is it, um, in my case, my brother is a self-employed restorer of old houses. He will lose his health care if uh, the Affordable Health Care Act goes down and it's going to be heard by the Supreme Court in November, um, possibly with a new justice there who is also probably not on the right side of that issue. I mean, we're fighting, and I agree with Todd, this is a huge social movement. What is America? You know, is it a mean country of angry, inward-looking, Christo-fascist white people, or is it the glorious melange that we think it is? Uh, and I think writers are fighting to defend that idea and show that that is the truth. That's not an ideal, simply. It's actually who and what we are. Thank you for that, Diane. I also think one of the things that I've noticed and one of the things the way people can use the website and the work of the writers that, are, that, have, that have contributed is that even the general public listening to this can go to the website, can share. They can share the stories that are up there. They can share the articles. There's a wonderful newsletter by James Carroll, I think, who writes a newsletter for the group that's really, really brilliant and really moving. And so I think there's a way that this website can be used. And to pick up on what Todd said and Carolyn said, I think this could go on even after the election. Because as we know, we have to keep everyone's feet to the fire all the time to make sure that this movement that Todd points out doesn't just dissipate into the ether somehow. Because the work is just beginning, the work is not over if in fact we're able to get rid of this guy. Um, but I do want to talk about these plenary sessions because that's been really pretty unique. And Carolyn, can you talk about the one that you kind of oversaw? You oversaw a plenary session that seemed really, really interesting. Would you talk a little bit yeah, about I, um I worked with some writers in Houston and uh, they, they got uh, participants from, the, uh, from Daniel Pena, and uh, who was a, a Latino writer, and uh, we had we had speakers who were activists, speakers who were writers, and um, and they made presentations. It was an hour of presentations and discussion, and then everyone stayed for another half hour of question and answers. But what emerged from that, which is Texas is moving in a bluer direction, what emerged was our understanding that Texans don't vote and that their voting rate is about 20%. So we realized that if we, if we accelerated voter registration, especially in the Spanish-speaking communities, Hispanic communities, Latinx communities, we could move that voter participation a few inches. We could move it a few percentage points. And that has happened since that plenary. They're writing to me and they're saying, we registered another million and a half people. Wow. Now, of course, registering and going to the polls are two different things maybe, but it's hopeful for us. Well, the and governor is trying to make it really difficult in Texas to do that. I mean, the drop -off, he's doing That's one right. drop off per, per, per millions of people. I mean, what he's done is it's voter suppression, but they know it. And people are very upset in Texas about the horrific treatment of asylum seekers and detainees, the caged children the inhumanity of it that's been going on since the beginning of his administration, the deliberate separation of families. And this is something that, that Hispanic communities in Texas are dis yeah. deeply disturbed about. You know, when it was, the, it was the thing, there was a frustration of last night, and I understand what Kamala was trying to do, but when, when Pence talks about being pro-life, 
and then to see what he did on the border and what the administration did and to know that it came from you know rod rosenstein who said you know i don't care how young they are they can be separated i mean it's brutal it's brutalizing it's horrific so these plenary sessions are open to the general public and they are a way in which people can get mobilized within the particular states and learn about how they can help if they live outside the state so help people there so diane we there's one coming up in florida so you want to talk about the one that is going to be next uh well we should give the date it's october 16th 17th on a saturday at 2 p.m and it'll be about florida and what do you have planned for it well, we've got we've got all kinds of interesting people um, showing up for it. We have the former Republican uh, Rick Wilson, who is possibly the funniest man uh, in America. I and mean too. He's mean as a snake. I say that as a compliment, but he's great. Um, we have got distinguished bookstore owner Mitch Kaplan. We have got. Uh, demographer from Central Florida, Evelyn Perez Verdia. We have uh, Fernand Amandi of the distinguished uh, Ben Dixon and Amandi firm of pollsters who are the geniuses behind a lot of Democratic wins in Florida. Um, and we're going to talk about how to vote in Florida, where to vote. I guess we'll get into why to vote, but I think people already have that part and show people how to mobilize those outside their community. I hope there'll be people from lots of other states. We have it at two o'clock so that the West Coast doesn't have to get up too early uh, to, to come and hang out with us. But we hope it'll be funny and it'll be enlightening and it will be um, a call to verbal arms that's a terrible metaphor, but you know well, what I mean. I think what you did, which was so well, so good about putting the program together, is you know, Florida, as we know, is like three states. There's South Florida, there's Central Florida, and then there's North Florida, and it literally is three completely different voting communities. And I think there'll be a really interesting um, effort to talk about each one of those segments yeah. in Florida. And and what I, you know, what I've been noticing is I get. I get calls from people who are advocating for, you know, the presidential ticket for Biden from out of state. So there are people working out of state and they're, they're calling in those states that are swing states. And Florida is such a swing state. So I think oh, this plenary yeah. session, I, I urge everybody listening today to make sure that they go to this plenary session. And Trump can't win without Florida. Yeah, if no, he can't. He the can't. Democrats can win Florida. Trump is over. And Carolyn and Todd, and I think Diane knows this, but I don't know if you, you know, you're aware of this, which is really interesting to me, is that Florida counts its absentee ballots as they come in. So we will know who won Florida by the end of the night. There's, unless they take it to court, unless it's too close or something like that. But if there's a if there's a real win, we'll know it, and um, it can't be controlled in Florida either by DeSantis because each county has its own uh, supervisor of elections, and they do it that way. So it's it's kind of interesting because if he loses Florida in the beginning, you know, at the beginning of the night, it'll be pretty much over for him, and he wouldn't be able to really fight it anywhere else. The next problem will be how to get him out of the White House. <laughs> And then we'll have to surround the White House and pull a yippee trick and go. Got to get the fumigator in, got to get the Marines in, you know, it's but, it, and a crowbar. But that, but that leads me a little bit to something. I, I'd love to get your historical perspective, uh, particularly Todd, you know, who's written about this and you've written about this for so long. I mean, your book on the 60s, uh, I don't remember when that came out, but I remember being riveted by it. Uh, I was just a little younger, and but I was fascinated by it all. And so, you know, all of us, you know, I was young, I cut my teeth at that period. And I would love you to speak to what this period may be doing for younger people, the way the 60s, you know, pretty much shaped my own political vision during the time that I was growing up. 
Well, that book came out, God Help Us, 33 years ago. Was it that long ago? My 1987, God. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think what's been happening in a more subterranean way, less flamboyant way for some years now, has been the surfacing of the same impulses of solidarity and equality and the desire for liberation, but also the desire for sociability. The same impulses that work their way to the surface in civil rights and the women's movement and the anti-war movement and the gay movement and others in the 60s, these are recurrent. You, it's almost like a return of the repressed, just as Trump is a return of the, the, the darkest of the repressed, the Klan repressed, the slavery repressed. The, the desire for a sensible way of life and some, some <laughs> to be genuinely conservative, conservative of the earth, conservative of human relations, these impulses are ineradicable. And they sometimes they go underground for a long period of time and then they crop up. You know, I, when, when, when Occupy Wall Street sort of burst out into the open in 2011, it seemed to many people and to some degree to me as like, where did this come from? Well, because it had been there. The spirit had been there and there were a whole lot of reasons why it was delayed and appearing. You know, it was partly because Obama was president and people took a while to sort of overcome their confidence that Obama had this in hand in uh, making the economy decent. But, you know, I, I, I know that this is gonna sound a little lyrical, but let it. I, I do think that there is this human and not only American, but also American passion to refuse to consider history over. There's a, a passion to live democracy, which is in fact, you know, democracy ought to be thought of as a verb. Mm. And um, um, so, you know, it, it comes and it goes. And when it goes, those of us who were in some of the high moments can be uh, discouraged and, 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 you know, really uh, wrecked by what seems to happen by way of backlash afterwards. Nonetheless, it doesn't go away. It's, it's uh, you know, what Marx called the old mole. It's always tunneling. And um, if it's permissible to talk about Marx. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so I think, you know, I, I really do think, you know, we're alive. And, and the, you know, the spirit that we're talking about is not a, a simple new spirit. Uh, before it was Trump, it was Nixon, it was the monstrous war in Vietnam, it was the system of Jim Crow, it was slavery, it was uh, male, it was patriarchy, it was, uh, you know, all imperialism. Um, there is always somehow a critical mass that's trying to work out how to, how to do something better. And I think, I don't envy young people. I mean, I'd like to be young, but I don't envy their situation looking ahead because of the economic disaster, the climatic disaster, which is already in play, much worse in other parts of the world than in the US, but increasingly bad as the West burns and the center floods. And I mean, we, we just had another crazy storm up here in upstate New York. We, we've had tornadoes in this area here. I used to spend summers near here when I was a kid, we never had tornadoes. Tornadoes are something that happened in Kansas, okay? So all of this is to say that, you know, every generation has crosses to bear, crosses and stars and crescents to bear. Um, it was not a picnic to come of age as I did feeling overshadowed by the nuclear bomb, which by the way, didn't go away. Um, I did not think I was fortunate to be at that moment. Uh, every generation, you know, there's a whole lot of nonsense about the greatest generation, those who fought in World War II, but it's, you know, that lionizing, no thanks to Tom Brokaw, omitted the fact that the Americans who went finally to fight against Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan 
were, uh, you know, they were happily um, uh, happy with pretending to be uh, quarantined from the rest of the world in the 1930s. They were, they were anti-interventionists. Right. So, I mean, there is no golden generation. It's hard. It's just human, human, the human situation is demanding and requires eternal vigilance. Well said. I, I also think, um, though, that what has happened with, you know, the extremism of Trump and the monstrous nature of Trump and how transparent he is, um, you know, you know, ripping that Band-Aid off uh, has allowed us to, or even having him as an actor on the political stage, brings to the fore so starkly all the issues that were shoved down for so many years. So I think, and, and Carolyn, I'd love, you know, Carolyn Diane to weigh in on this. It seems to me, you know, I've been a, you know, critical of the media for so long. I mean, starting with Neil Postman's book, you know, Amusing Ourselves to Death. But the question that I, I have now is I'm watching serious stuff being discussed in the media for the very first time. I mean, they have certainly their faults, but when you watch, you know, even the straight media on CNN and you're watching MSNBC and they're really talking about some pretty serious stuff with pretty serious people as guests, um, I don't remember that. Ten, even during the Occupy Wall Street period, there was always an a period. There was always a, an attempt to kind of to kind of push it down. But I think it's almost it's it's almost impossible to suppress as a as a bookseller. You know what I see in terms of the voices being published now, the diversity of voices, people from every culture talking during the time of the pandemic and the George Floyd thing, the most, the 10 most popular books were all anti-racist books one way or another, which was so interesting to me. And they were being bought by white people. They weren't just being bought by people of color. And so there is a paradigm shift going on, which makes me a little bit more hopeful for what we can achieve after this election, if it goes the right way. Carolyn, I don't know how you feel or Diane feel about that as well. I've been teaching um, now for 45 years, and I noticed in the early 2000s the emergence of a generation followed by another generation of young people who were deeply serious. They were more political than their predecessors had been for some time, and their galvanizing issue was climate change, but also capitalism. They began to see they were in debt. They were being made to go in debt in order to be educated, and uh, and they noticed inequities, inequities of wealth distribution, uh, racial inequities. Um, they, they noticed uh, treatment of women, you know, elements of misogyny in their culture. And they were, they were awake and they were talking about this and they were affected by, by Occupy Wall Street. But then they began forming Black Lives Matter and other organizations and they connected with each other sometimes loosely, sometimes uh, in a very integrated way, but they, um, I noticed that the young people are marching all over this country, regardless of their race or their gender. LGBTQ people are getting a lot of support from people who are not part of that community. And I think there's a convergence at work. And I'm very impressed by the younger generations. You know, they're not, they don't um, engage in a lot of display. They're not, you know, um, they're not fighting a cultural war so much as they're fighting a deeply structural war, you know, to, to, because they know something is deeply at stake for them. They are going to have to live with this climate degradation for the rest of their lives. They are going to have to deal with their indebtedness for the rest of their lives. It's, it's serious business for them. And I'm really happy that I get to spend the last couple of decades of my teaching in the company of these very serious people. Oh, that must be very hard. I agree so much, Carolyn. Sorry. Diane, are you feeling the same thing at FSU? Absolutely. I, um, I teach creative writing as well as Southern, we just call it Southern culture at FSU because I, I'm trying to give them the historical tools. They have the ideas. I just want them to know where this stuff comes from. And 
whatever reading I give them, they want more. I am so heartened by these kids. I'm so proud of them. Uh, they educate me and they challenge me. You know, they, they challenge some of my assumptions. Sometimes they challenge some of my use of language, which I really like. You know, you, it's hard to know what you don't know uh, until the 22-year-old says, I don't think you should put it that way. You are making reference to, and because you come from this kind of background as white and Southern and privileged, and I'd say 99 times out of 100, they're right. Once in a while, maybe I can get them, but very, very rarely. They give me so much hope, and it breaks my heart what they're inheriting. You know, they're inheriting, um, you know, a lot of my students are from Florida, a lot of them from South Florida. They know what sunny day flooding is. They, they don't buy the idea that it's a fluke. They know it's climate change. They can give me the science on it. They understand what's happening to the water in Florida, like we're, we're ruining it and there's not enough of it. They know this stuff and they're hot to write about it. These are writing students and man, I just can't wait till they are fully unleashed on the world. And I'm so proud to be able to, to do this. It's a privilege to teach kids like this. And, uh, you know, I think probably I learn as much or possibly more from them than they ever learned from me. Um, I just give them book lists and I just egg them on. They don't need that much from me. They just need somebody going, yeah, that sounds great. Go, go do it. They organize. I mean, you know, it's FSU is or was until the COVID a really fun campus. I guess it's still a fun campus since you'll see in the national press pictures of FSU students piling on each other in bars like a bunch of puppies. Um, that's one segment of our student population. There's nothing to be done about that, but we have others who are who are off wearing their masks and, and Zooming in Zoom meetings with their their cohorts and trying to do good in the world, trying to organize. And man, they're, they're just really. Well, to really that end, to that end, just, you know, FYI, I'm noticing that, you know, here in South Florida, it's South Florida is crawling with high school kids who've taken a gap year and are down here from up North to try to work for the Biden campaign. It's kind wow. of, wild. I mean, I've run into at least, 15 or 20 kids like that at the bookshop, you know, wow. bookstores tend to be, you know, tend to be magnets. And it's really kind of cool. These are, these are kids who might not even be able to vote. They're like 17, 18 year old kids. And, and the, the last thing is let's, let's be hopeful. Let's assume that we're able to make it all work. And there is a transfer of power and a transfer of regimes and how do we look afterwards as progressives at look at look at the allies that we've developed you know the people who've come to us people like rick wilson people like bill crystal who would have ever imagined you know people who in other iterations of our politics we were completely on the other side but now we understand that there's something there's, there's, a, there's a limit. We, we share a moral, there's something moral about what we share. There's something deep down that, that, that is repugnant to all of us, as opposed to those who aren't repulsed by what they see. So what, to, what kind of, where do we go? Do we fall back on, into our corners and we fall back in trying to work through you know, uh, political issues and politics as usual, or do we take this this kind of common humanity and say and try to convince one another? Since we're talking to one another now, in a way that we never did before, Am I, making, I don't know if I'm making yes. any sense. But I feel that the conditions are such now that we are so imperiled and the conditions are so very grave and they are not going to be mitigated anytime soon. I think we're going to be focused on solutions and on addressing our problems more so than on, you know, petty politics or divisions that used to exist, at least on our side of things. 
And, and so I think that people are going to be working on, on climate change and they're going to be working on, on what's going to happen with wealth distribution, what's going to happen with basic income, how are people actually going to survive, you know, in our all, and we're in the midst of a pandemic. I think the only people that are going to be able to get us out of this are the, are, are the Democrats if they come into office. I think the pandemic will be endless if, if we're in the hands of the Trump regime and very much longer. Oh, so they're, I, already, they're already talking about herd, herd immunity. Right. Yeah, well, herd immunity means mass death. That's what of it means. Course, of so, course, of course. So I think that we're going to be faced with such challenges that we'll have to work together and we'll have to be smart and we'll have to listen to science again. You know, we'll have to listen to people who, who know how to think and who are looking at the world with great clarity and awareness. I'm not, I don't fear uh, going backwards. I don't think we can go back. I don't think the world will ever be the same post-pandemic. And I just don't think it can. I think that I hope we will create a space for those Republicans that used to, well, they mostly left office or some have left the party, but people who they have a different philosophy of governing to some extent, but basic, as you said, Mitch, a, a moral core. Right. And if we can resist the impulse to go back to complete tribalism, to the complete us versus them, red versus blue thing, we could probably get a lot of stuff done. So, uh, just knowing the kinds of Republicans around here, Tallahassee is a very democratic town, but the Republicans sweep in on us uh, once a year for the legislative session. You know, a number of really decent, really thoughtful people who are also appalled by Trump, um, they want not to go back, but to go forward. And I think forward's the only, it's, we've got to go forward. We can't Todd, go back to normal. Todd, you, Todd, you have the last word here. Uh, I'm afraid it's gonna be a cautionary one. Good. Um, I don't think we should imagine that our divisions are going to vanish like a miracle, as Trump's like to say. <laughs> I am. I revere the Lincoln Project, the 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 renegade Republicans, the Republican voters uh, against Trump, and so on. But I want to report to you. About a year ago, I was at a panel discussion about everything. Bill Kristol was one of the panelists, and at that point, even though he's been quite wonderfully uh, anti-Trump, this is remember the man who brought us Sarah Palin. Oh. Um, but he was still declaring that uh, the central value for him was economic liberty. That was his phrase. And economic liberty means the liberty of the Koch brothers. Economic liberty means the liberty of ExxonMobil. And we cannot, we'll have to fight that out. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't want to make nice about it. I appreciate his born again appearance as a, as a humanist. But um, we're going to have to do politics, is what I'm is what I'm I'm saying. And and I and the exciting part to me is about the Biden, the advent of the Biden Harris administration is not that they're going to take care of everything; it's that they are going to transform the field of action, just as Roosevelt did when he was elected, because it was a union movement that heralded him and needed him and put pressure on him. We are in a comparable position. So, but it's not a position in which we get to hide from politics. It's going to be politics all the way down. And, and, and it's in the open now, which is really good. It's in the open. So as Carolyn talked about, it'll never be the same. It's in the open. You know, people can now speak forthrightly about all kinds of things. And you can use the word socialism again. In any case, I can go on all day with you guys. This is really, <laughs> this is what your, if this is what your meetings are like at Writers Against uh, Trump, uh, you should be recording them. And I want to listen. I want to be, I want to be Pence's fly on the wall and listen to everything <laughs> that you're talking about. But it's really a pleasure having you all uh, I know that the plenary session that we're having about Florida is next Saturday, Saturday the 17th at 2 p.m. If you go to writers, 
writersagainsttrump.org. You can sign up for it and you'll know how to get on. And thank you for all the good work the three of you are doing. Uh, Diane Roberts, Carolyn Forche, and Todd Gitlin, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you, Mitch. This is great. Such a pleasure, Mitch. Onward. <laughs>